Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, welcome to this Global Council podcast. Um, our theme this week is trade, and my name is Stephen Adams. I am Global Council's Senior Director, uh, and I'm delighted to be joined on this podcast by Ellie Darkin, a Senior Associate from the GC Trade Team. And our subject for today is uh, are two recent developments in UK trade policy, in particular, the signing of the UK Australia Free Trade Agreement. And Ellie and I are going to spend a few minutes thinking out loud about what seems to matter in this agreement, what the two sides have achieved, how they approach the negotiation. And then we'll spend a few minutes just at the end reflecting on another development from the last couple of weeks, which is the uh, UK's digital partnership agreement with Singapore. Uh, Ellie, um, welcome to the podcast. Let's just start with a little bit of context. Why does it matter that the UK has signed a free trade agreement with Australia in particular? Thanks, Stephen. So the FTA with Australia is important for a number of reasons. First of all, it's the first UK FTA to be negotiated from scratch since the UK has left the European Union. And as such, it presents an opportunity for the UK to, to demonstrate how exactly it's going to do things differently as an independent trading nation. And its choice of partner in Australia is important for a number of reasons. First of all, the UK has some strong bilateral ties with Australia for a number of historic reasons. It's obviously a member of the Commonwealth and for a number of more recent geopolitical reasons. Um, reasons if we think about the relationship in the context of AUKUS, the, the recently um, signed Trilateral Security Pact. Um, and the negotiations with Australia have been particularly quick to conclude. Uh, which point to a sort of uh, an, an eagerness from Australia to sign a deal with the UK since it left the EU. So there's been importance on on sort of this bilateral trade level, and also because the, Australia sits within the CPTPP, an Asia Pacific trading bloc, which the UK is looking to exceed as part of its broader tilt to the Indo Pacific. So in many ways, this deal with Australia is seen as a stepping stone for the UK towards CPTPP accession, uh, which it plans to to pursue. Um, as a priority for the government during the course of 2022. Okay, so before we before we dig down into some of the technical detail, which is obviously going to matter for listeners to to this podcast, um, to, to what extent is the is the is the UK Australia FTA uh, drawn from the legal content of CPTPP, and to what extent is it a, a different a different beast? So much of the text in the UK-Australia FTA is actually crafted on the basis of the legal text of the CPTPP. This is true of um, most, most, if not all, chapters. Um, Much of the the baseline text will have been looked at through the lens of the CPTPP. Then the UK and Australia have sought to to build or carve out certain aspects of it based on um, a number of strategic priorities. But there are actually very few ways in which the, the, the text will, as a whole, deviate in terms of its legal structure from the CPTPP text. Uh, what it will do is add or change or make more bespoke specific provisions within the subcontent of that text. Um, and here it's also interesting to point out that there has been one new chapter that the UK and Australia have negotiated as part of this deal, um, which doesn't 
um, you know, exist within the, 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 the framework of the CPTPP, and that is the innovation chapter. So the UK and Australia have sort of sought to promote this as a, as a new and quite novel chapter within the, the framework of their free trade agreement. But, you know, nonetheless, the, the broad basis of the agreement is built upon the CPTPP. Yeah. Okay. And as, as you say, this is the UK's first, um, the first FTA that has signed since leaving the European Union that isn't the rolling over in the first instance of an existing EU FTA. So maybe as we go through some of the technical areas of the agreement, we can we can just flag some of the ways in which the UK has done things differently from the kind of conventional EU approach. But let's let's start with let's start with goods uh, and the extent of tariff reductions. And perhaps let's spend just a minute reflecting on just how important agricultural market access is in this agreement and uh, what it tells us about the UK politically and practically that it appears to have taken a very uh, liberal approach to farm tariff reduction. Yeah, absolutely. So the absolute headline observation of this deal is that it establishes tariff-free and duty-free trade in goods for both sides, um, subject to a number of phase and periods and caveats. So this means that on entry into force, about 95% of existing tariffs will be um, liberalised. Then on the UK side, there will be about a 15-year phase in period for a number of sensitive agricultural goods. So this includes things like a 15-year phase in period for beef and sheep meat, whereas that's, you know, drops down to things like eight years for sugar, five years for dairy products and so on. And this has been, this has been, you know, the main strand of coverage of the deal has focused around this issue. And it's been largely seen as a sort of political and strategic concession on the UK side to grant Australia such sweeping market access to um, to its agricultural market. Um, this is uh, something that's been reflected heavily in the government's own economic analysis. Indeed, one of the biggest winners of the deal has been pointed out to be the Australian farming sector. And this all comes down to the fact that the UK and Australia have very different business models of farming. Australia is, of course, a larger country. It has larger farms and therefore sort of larger economies of scale. And therefore, it's able to produce goods, um, agricultural goods, uh, at a more competitive price. And therefore, imports that come into the UK from Australia are seen to increase um, competition for British domestic farming goods. And British farmers have therefore sort of vehemently opposed such concessions. Um, so this is obviously a, a huge way in which the UK's approach to negotiations has differed from the EU's, which has traditionally been um, slightly more defensive on agricultural market access issues. Um, and it really points to somewhat of a divide within the government itself, because, you know, this has not been an easy negotiating track for the UK to pursue. Uh, the UK's own cabinet was was deeply divided over the issue. Um, but nonetheless, the UK appears to have prioritised um, a, a concession on, on market access um, for sort of some targeted extractions of concessions in other areas. And also because it's, you know, it's operating within a political context in which making a deal with a with a country, a third country, which doesn't have a deal existing with the EU, um, is politically important for, for post-Brexit Britain. But do you think that the decisions or the trade-offs on farm goods, do you see those as chiefly ideological or are they more pragmatic in the sense, as you say, that this was a government in a hurry to secure uh, a standalone free trade agreement. Uh, it recognised that Australia would want, as it's always wanted and has always demanded from the EU, uh, a fairly ambitious approach to agricultural tariff reduction. And the government was just willing to accept that that was the, the price to pay for the 
both the symbol and the substance of, of this new FTA? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I think, to be honest, it's it's a bit of both. I think you do have those within the Conservative Party who are ideologically committed to more aggressive market liberalisation. And you have the other wing of the party, which is uh, believes in more in a slightly more protected climate for farmers to operate in. And I think in this case, there has been a sense in which the ideological argument for fuller market liberalisation has won out within the party itself. But there has also been this very clear and transparent pragmatic interest from the UK government to get new deals done mm. um, and, to, and to, to demonstrate the fact that it can move more swiftly on trade policy decisions outside of the EU and that it can, it can deal make in a much more nimble um, context um, than it could do as part of the EU bloc. But it's interesting because these kind of the suggestion of these kind of concessions in the context of a UK US FTA, and admittedly there were other political things in play here, but uh, these kinds of farm tariff cuts in the face of US demands were, I think, widely and probably rightly seen as really politically toxic in the UK. So it is quite mm-hmm. interesting that the government has decided to bite the bullet with. Australia, um, and uh, it, of course, as you say, sets a sets a sets a serious precedent, and obviously one that's certainly going to come back um, should the UK negotiate these questions with the US at any point in the future. It does, it does, and I think on the question of precedent setting, I mean, this is this is part of the you know part of the argument from the British farming community that was opposed to this deal was not just that you know Australian imports would flood the UK market and you know put, put British farmers out of business it was much more around this argument that it sets a precedent for agricultural market liberalization and future deals and it has pointed to the US as, as, as an example of this but I think there's also a, you know when we when we consider the role of the deal as a precedent setter I think we do also need to take into account that you know this sweeping market at market market access concession was um, made possible by the fact that Australia was looking you know for reciprocal levels of um, providing market access to its own agricultural market um, in ways that future FTA negotiating partners may well not be willing to do hmm. so I think it's it's a, it's a, it's true to say that not many countries um, are always looking for complete full fully duty-free and quota-free trade agreements. The UK, for example, has an upcoming renegotiation of its FTA with Canada next year. And, um, you know, I think it's it's hard to imagine a situation in which Canada would be looking to provide complete duty-free, quota-free access to its own agricultural market access. And therefore, it probably won't be looking for reciprocal levels of market access and agriculture um, in that negotiation. So yeah, I think, and that's, you know, true of the, consider- that's true of the Americans as well, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, always, a, yeah. there's, there's always a sort of 3 to 5% margin in terms of residual protection for for farm goods in almost any even even developed economy. So as you say, maybe this is actually uh, qu- quite quite an idiosyncratic e- example in that respect. I think there's to some also, extent, definitely. There's also a there's also um, sort of something interesting to note on the UK's approach to or the the UK and Australia's approach to origin requirements as well. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, absolutely. So in general, the rules of origin provisions um, in this deal have been greatly simplified compared to EU agreements that usually um, contain quite complex rules in this area. So the approach taken in this FTA is that there's a use of regional value add content alongside the criteria for chapter heading and subheading changes um, for goods to meet product specific rules of origin. So all this means in practice that it's easier for companies to prove that they meet rules of origin because they have to just show that the chapter, the heading or the subheading has changed um, when looking at product specific rules of origin. So it's moving away from quite a, a complicated and restrictive approach in EU FTAs that looks more at the sort of the 
the, the changes in components and ingredients that are broken down at an individual intermediate product level. Um, so this has been one of the areas in which the UK has shown that it is willing to do something differently and take a different ap approach to rules of origin. Um, and it's something that has been has been welcomed and indeed called for from businesses throughout the consultation process. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. And I think this is one area where this deal really does push against the kind of existing trend on origin requirements, which is without question towards more complex product specific mm -hmm. rules, um, you know, uh, not not towards greater simplification, but towards greater complexity. I mean, I guess the uh, the, the 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 flip side, or the rather the other thing that you need to bear in mind here is, of course, that um, the origin rules here, of course, don't cover the UK's EU supply chains or indeed its global supply chains either. So you're looking at no. uh, you're looking at a framework that's been simplified. But of course, if you map it onto the way UK firms would have thought about their ability to build supply chains and serve Australia five or 10 years ago, uh, you're dealing with a very different picture. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's partly, you know, that's that's based on the fact that the deal provides for bilateral accumulation of origin, which means that value add and manufacturing process in both Australia and the UK will count towards those local content thresholds and meeting rules of origin. But it will not take into account um, anything, to, anything like a diagonal accumulation provision, which would include the EU in this. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's something that the UK has has looked at pushing in certain FTA negotiations, but has been sort of vehemently pushed back on. Um, for quite obvious reasons by its FTA negotiating partners. Yeah, and it, in practice, I think those things are only ever going to emerge at some hypothetical point in the future where the UK, the EU and a third country are actually willing to collaborate on an origin framework and a linked set of preferential tariffs. Uh, what about um, beyond goods? I mean, what jumps out for you from the non-goods content? You already mentioned the, the innovation chapter. I mean, I understand, I can see why the UK government might want to push it. It does seem to me that it's, well, of course, it's interesting, the idea of trying to build a bit of content on innovation policy into an FTA. Um, this is only really a, a timid first step, but it is perhaps a first step. What what else strikes you as interesting from the non-goods content? Sure. So there's been the include, well, I mean, there are a couple of things. There's digital services, there's a procurement, and there's professional mobility, which probably jump out at me as the most interesting. So on digital services, there has been, on digital trade, this chapter is is rather progressive in terms of its, its liberalisation of digital trade. It goes above and beyond some of the provisions agreed in the CPTPP, does things like ensure that the legal recognition of e-contracts, e-document signatures, prohibits unnecessary restrictions on cross broader flows of data flows, requirements on data lo localization and so forth. Um, so it's broadly seen as somewhat of a gold standard digital trade chapter in this agreement. And, you know, when I've been speaking to some industry representatives about it, they do broadly feel um, very happy with the content of that chapter. On procurement, the UK has managed to negotiate additional access to procurement markets in Australia. These are both at the national and government level. Um, so entities in charge of, of health, environment, energy and transport will open up their procurement markets to UK bidders. And at the sub-central level or the state federal level in Australia, entities uh, will also now consider UK companies in localised public procurement contracts. So this is one of those areas in which it's actually quite a material um, benefit for for governments for businesses that are operating on the ground in Australia, they will now be able to access legal tenders, um, procurement processes that they were not able to access before. 
And then the final point I think of interest is on professional mobility. So there's been quite a comprehensive package of professional mobility and general mobility secured in the deal. There's been an intercompany transfer commitment for up to four years for um, workers, but also their dependents and spouses, which is, um, you know, quite, quite quite generous when looked at in the context of other FTA negotiations. There's also been the fact that Australia has removed its national preference requirement for visas for UK nationals. There's been a guarantee that lawyers can practice law in Australia. And there's also been a side package that um, under 35s in both Australia and the UK can live and work in each other's countries for up to three years. Um, So quite quite, quite a broad package of mobility. Uh, commitments have been agreed in the site in the margins of this deal. Yeah, that I mean that decision, or rather the, the the fact that both sides were willing to build an adjacent set of commitments on professional mobility and uh, youth mobility, youth 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 working visas, I think does actually add a real additional layer of value here. It's it's not the sort of thing you would expect to see in an FTA. Uh, in fact, often these kinds of questions are often kept very distinct from. FTA negotiations, and it was it was the idea of a kind of um, quasi freedom of movement um, element to a UK Australia FTA was floated several years ago. So it's it's interesting to see it come to fruition, and I think it's it does it does do something quite different from any previous uh, FTA. I think probably the main thing about this part of the deal or the non-goods part of the deal is as always with with the services content and the regulatory policy content of a free trade agreement is is just to bear in mind what your what what kind of benchmark you're measuring against here the 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 content of the FTA in this area with some exceptions like you flagged there on public procurement um it, it essentially functions as a as a guarantee as a guarantee of of Australia and the UK's existing treatment of each other and that can that means you have to look at it in a very different way from the goods concessions, which are very, very material and do genuinely represent new market access, whereas essentially what the dividend here is is new certainty, new certainty for, for UK exporters. Um, but the UK government, and I think you know rightly and fairly, um, points out that Australia hasn't ever extended a package of guarantees on this scope and with this extent before. So, you know, me- measured by the that the benchmark of services and, and regulatory content in an FTA, which should be the benchmark of what does the other side essentially guarantee to do or continue doing into the future. Um, Australia has never offered a trading partner um, these kind of guarantees before. So that's, you know, that's perhaps less material than the goods content, but on its own terms, it's, 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 a, fairly, uh, it's a fairly handy win from the UK side. Um, okay, let's just finish with a few words on the Singapore agreement. I mean, just tell us why. Obviously, we haven't had a text of this yet, so we are uh, we are working from the content of the agreement in principle. But um, what do you think matters about this agreement, and what does it tell us? Sure. So the UK Singapore Digital Economy Agreement was um, was agreed in principle earlier this month, and there are sort of two important things to note here. First is that it locks in a lot of existing commitments that are either enshrined already in the UK and Singapore's bilateral free trade agreement, or are already happening in practice on the ground in, in both markets. So these are things like existing commitments on requiring both countries have data protection frameworks in place. You know, 
recognise the use of electronic signatures and so forth. So this, again, as you were saying on the services point with the Australia FTA, Stephen, it largely codifies an existing state of play and locks in more guarantees and commitments. But this, you know, it's this is this is not nothing. It's still nonetheless significant because locking in that status quo can provide certainty and, and security for businesses operating in those markets. But on the other hand, the um, and perhaps the most interesting part of the, the new digital, digital economy agreement is that it establishes a number of new um, forums for regulatory cooperation and diplomacy that hadn't previously existed between the UK and Singapore. So, for example, it establishes a new dialogue on the use of technology to deliver digital services. This is something that's been agreed for the first time ever in a digital economy agreement. It's not included in Singapore's previous agreements with other partners, and it's not ingredi- uh, included within the framework of the digital economy partnership agreement uh, that was concluded in 2020. Uh, So this is a genuinely new and novel forum for cooperation within the legal services profession. And there are also certain MOUs, memoranda of understanding that have been agreed on cybersecurity, digital identity and trade facilitation that will provide new forums for regulatory dialogue between various authorities and agencies between the UK and Singapore. So while we don't have the full text of the agreement yet, as you've already mentioned, we do know that these platforms will be set up and in the margins of them, we're going to see new pilot projects on things like sharing electronic bills of lading, which are used in, in commercial documents for shipping goods. We're also going to see sharing of best practice on things like the single window system, which the UK is in the design phase of setting up, but Singapore already has quite an advanced one. So there's genuine, um, you know, genuine commitment there to collaborate around something that will be of use and of material impact for traders in, in the coming months and years. Hmm. So we look forward to seeing a full text on that. Uh, okay, Ellie, ex- exit question. Um, the UK, Australia, uh, FTA, how much does it matter? Zero, no big deal, 10, game changer. <laughs> um, I would put it at, uh, I will I will play it safe and, and say about a five. I think it matters because it, it really shows, sets a precedent and signals quite heavily about where UK, the UK's strategic priorities lie and what kind of approach it's looking to foster towards negotiations. But I think we need to be careful when we're looking at its importance not to overstate it and the read across it's going to have to other FTA negotiations because, as I'd already mentioned, the Australia is you know, quite a specific trading partner that wanted had its own set of, of needs and desires within this deal and was willing to um, provide conditions of market access that other countries might not. So I would be careful to read across too much into the, the value of this deal as a sort of blueprint for every UK deal moving forward. Great. Okay. Well, obviously, uh, if you're listening to this and you're interested in knowing more about some of the implications of the UK, Australia, FTA, or indeed the Singapore Digital Economy Agreement when its full text emerges, um, as always, don't hesitate to get in touch. Um, Ellie Darkin, thanks very much. My name is Stephen Adams. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.